but there's like some Pedialyte electrolyte drink there on the counter while I'm at the store. And like, it was interesting. My eyes saw it and my body craved it instantly. My body said, the brain said, hey, your body is very dehydrated, very depleted, very in need of what you're looking at. And there was this urge to just pick it up and drink it. And uh, it, it reminded me very much of what we'll be talking about this morning is we talk about First um, Peter and the message of suffering and trials in this world. They make us hungrier, thirstier for the kingdom of God. The, the lack of fulfillment we find in this world, that is ingrained in, in us because By very nature, God created us for him, created us for his kingdom in the lack of us getting what we need for the purposes for which we were created in this world makes us hungrier for the kingdom of God, makes us thirstier for the kingdom of God. It's by God's design and the less content we are in this world, the sweeter it is going to make the kingdom of God when we get there. First Peter, the theme has been standing firm in suffering or the Christian's response to suffering. As followers of Christ in this world, how are we to respond to the suffering that we encounter? The passage we'll look at this morning, 1 Peter chapter 4, we're going to be in verses 12 to 19. And while that is the theme of 1 Peter, really everything we've studied ties into that. This morning, the passage addresses the subject very directly, very directly. The passage we'll look at this morning really falls into three parts, the promise of suffering, The second part we'll look at is our response to suffering. And the third thing we'll look at is the purpose of suffering. And what Peter's telling us here is that suffering and specifically persecution purifies the church and focuses us on heaven. As I went through the day yesterday, the longer the day went, There's no concession stand out there. There, There's a lot of questions as to why we live where we live and play baseball where we play baseball. No concession stands, no shade. But as the day went on, I became thirstier and hungrier. In the same way, persecution makes us thirstier, hungrier for heaven. I'm going to read these verses for us, verses 12 to 19, and then we'll dive in. Peter writes, Beloved, Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that you also at the revelation of his glory may rejoice with exaltation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. 
But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Peter starts here really with a promise of suffering. In verse 12, he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which has come upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. So Peter is writing to a people that is in the midst of persecution. But Peter knows that while they're in the midst of persecution, this persecution will continue. And if you are familiar with scripture, you know that from the beginning till the end, persecution is something that God promises to the people of God. So when it comes to suffering, we shouldn't be surprised. There's nothing strange, as Peter says here, about the fact that they are suffering. And the suffering can take numerous forms. The, the form that Peter has most prominently in mind and what he's addressing most directly here is persecution. But if you live in this world, you experience suffering in many different forms, various types of trials, diseases, circumstances. And these things shouldn't surprise us. We live in a sinful world. We live in a sinful world. As Paul tells us in Romans 8, all creation groans because of the effects of sin. And we see the effects of sin all around us and throughout nature. Sin has brought death, destruction, disorder into this world. It's exactly what God promised us would happen. If you go back to Genesis, it's what God told Adam and Eve would be the consequence of their sin, and now we see that consequence all around us. We shouldn't be surprised by suffering because we live in a world of people continually sinning, people continuing to sin and bring further destruction, further death, further chaos into this world. More persecution a more challenging environment to be a Christian in. We ourselves are constantly sinning. And with our own sin, we bring trials, suffering oftentimes into our life. Now, the, one of the key truths to never forget is that God is sovereign over all of this. God is in control over all of this. At, at no point in time has God been caught off guard by sin or surprised by sin or had his plans thwarted by, by sin. God is sovereign over all. And in this mysterious, we can't fully understand this because we are not smart enough. 
but in this way that we can never fully comprehend, in his sovereignty and his love, wisdom, power, even this sin he uses for his purposes. He uses for his purposes in glorifying himself. He's never the source of sin. Human beings, we always bring about this sin of ourselves, but God is still in his infinite wisdom and power able to use it for his glory and purposes, for the good of his church, even for the good of you personally. There's example after example of this. My favorite in terms of just the one that immediately comes to mind, Joseph, you know, Joseph had some very sinful, terrible things done to him throughout his life. And in each of those circumstances, Joseph was faithful to God. He stuck to the plan. God used Joseph for great purposes. And in Genesis 50, 20, Joseph's brothers are apologizing to him for some of the horrible things that they did to him. And Joseph says, you know, you meant it for evil. He's not getting them off the hook, right? Like, yeah, you did mean that for evil. It was pure evil, yet God meant it for good. And Jesus obviously is the greatest example of this. Sinful humanity takes God in the flesh and murders him on a cross. The most sinful act in human history is at the same time the pinnacle of God's redemptive plan. So this reality of suffering in this world should not cause us to despair. Yeah, it should make us sad. It should make us long for the kingdom of God. Peter's gonna tell us that very much. But it does not lead to despair because we know the plan, the power, the love, the wisdom of God. And Peter tells this group that is in the midst of persecution, the early church here that he's writing to, he says, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that is among you. Because this persecution is a consistent promise for the people of God. What happens in Genesis 3? The fall. Sin enters the world. Humanity elects to rebel against their creator, to attempt to usurp his authority. Sin enters the world in Genesis 3. In Genesis 4, the very next chapter, Cain is jealous of the righteousness of Abel and persecutes Abel, killing him for his righteousness. Flip through the prophets. Jesus told us this. Flip through the prophets. They were persecuted. The New Testament, 2 Timothy 3, 12. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Peter would tell us, don't be surprised by this fiery ordeal. Don't be surprised by persecution. Jesus, as he's calling people to the kingdom and as he's training disciples and apostles over and over again brings up the persecution that they will face and the suffering that they will face for following him. Matthew 5, 11 to 12.
Jesus says, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You hop over just the same Sermon on the Mount, verses 43 to 44, same chapter of Matthew. Um, Jesus telling us how to respond to those who persecute you. Jesus says, hey, you've heard you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those persecute you. Jesus was always teaching his disciples, his apostles, how to respond to persecution. In chapter 10, he's sending out his apostles and he's teaching them what they need to know as they go about preaching the gospel. And he says to them, 1016, behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be shrewd as serpents, innocent as doves. A few more here. Um, Still Matthew chapter 10, verses 21 and 22, Jesus says, Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name. But it is the one who endures, who has, or it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. Down in verse 25, Jesus telling them, hey, if they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign the members of his household? Uh, We could keep going, right? We could have started in the Old Testament. We could go throughout scripture. And every few pages, especially in the New Testament, every few pages, the scriptures are going to be teaching us again about persecution, about suffering, and how we should respond. So if you're surprised by suffering in this world, you have not been paying attention. This was, Jesus didn't hide this. This wasn't something that like, oh, now that you've decided to follow me, let me tell you about how it'll really be. No, this is something Jesus put on the front page. If you are surprised by suffering, you have not been paying attention. And the suffering comes in various forms and at varying degrees. Just because persecution is promised to us, it doesn't necessarily mean that all of us are going to die for our faith. It could. And there's certain times and places throughout history in the world where that is very much a reality, even today. But there's a chance that that's not the reality for us, yet persecution, suffering will still come in various forms, as, in varying degrees as followers of Jesus Christ. It could be in relationships, especially within family. I think many of us know the challenge that can come with being a Christian in your family. Because as flesh and blood, they tend to think that they have certain rights to your life, right? And, you know, there are some things we owe to our family, absolutely, but we owe more to God. Our loyalty is first to God. Sometimes those things are going to come into conflict, and it's challenging. It, it, it takes a lot of wisdom and discernment. How do I love them and minister to them and respond in a way that's loving 
and at the same time, faithful to who Christ has called me to be. We feel it with friends. We feel it in our jobs. I think increasingly in the corporate world, at least where I live, there's increasingly challenges, issues that come up, and you're like, hmm, how would God want me to respond to this? Because they're going to want you to be involved in stuff and doing stuff and talking about stuff, and you're like, hmm, how does, what is the way I can, you know, Romans 13, as much as it's within my control, be at peace and submit to authority, but it can get kind of tricky, right? Um, this suffering, this persecution, this conflict between a sinful world in the church, a sinful world and us as followers of Christ, it's inevitable. It is inevitable. That's why Jesus said, Matthew 10, 16, it's so true, so accurate. I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. You better be wise as serpents yet innocent as doves. Do you see the wisdom in the words of Christ? The timelessness of what he's teaching, the truth. It applies to every age. It applied to the immediate audience of Peter. It applies to us. It applies throughout church history. Since suffering is a promise, not something that we should be surprised in, we've got to be prepared. Preparation comes in day in and day out, growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Growing in his word daily, walking um, with him daily. And this is for any trial in life, right? Whether it be persecution, sickness, Poverty, disease, the remedy for all is the grace of Jesus Christ, the peace and the strength that he provides. The key for us is to be ready. Our inclination as people is sadly sometimes and sinfully to be spiritually lazy until that suffering comes in, right? Or until the trial pops up and then all of a sudden you want to get real serious about God. It's like, it doesn't really work that way. That's not the best approach. It's like, if you wanted to be a professional athlete, you're not just showing up on the day of the game, right? If you wanna excel in any endeavor, you're getting ready every day. You're getting ready every day to be who you wanna be. Walking with Christ, it's a day in and day out walk so that when these trials come, we are prepared. Peter, 2 Peter 3.18 is going to say, grow in the grace and knowledge of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I love that verse. I love that verse. That's, that's your daily objective. Jesus said it as seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Don't be worrying about all the things that are, there's a lot to be worried about in this life. There's a lot. I mean, there's no shortage. Peter's talking about something here, suffering, that we could very easily be worried about. But the grace comes through daily growth in Jesus Christ. 
So since this suffering is guaranteed, and Peter says in verse 12, for our testing, we're gonna talk about that a little bit more here um, as we get to the bottom of our passage. But as we're on the subject of suffering, how do we respond? As followers of Christ, that's our number one question to everything. Should be the number one question to everything we encounter every single day. How does God want me to live in this circumstance? How do I stay faithful to God? How do I respond? Peter's going to give us a surprising answer. Well, it shouldn't be a surprise if you've studied the New Testament. But if you're just, if you don't know anything, this is the first time you've heard about the Bible, rejoice. That's surprising response, right? Rejoice. He says in verse 13, to the degree that you share in the suffering of Christ, keep on rejoicing. From purely human natural standpoint, that sounds kind of crazy. Rejoicing on a human level makes a lot of sense when things are going the way we want them to go. You know, um, you get a new job, promotion that you've been wanting, rejoice. You recover from an illness, rejoice. A family member comes to Christ, rejoice. Those are things to rejoice in, yeah, absolutely. And, but those things kind of make sense. But to rejoice in suffering on a purely human level, that does not make sense. Verse 13 runs counter to our natural inclination. To the degree that you share in the suffering of Christ, keep on rejoicing. And he really takes it up a notch by saying, to the degree that you suffer, like the more you suffer and share in the suffering of Christ, the more you suffer for Christ, the more you should rejoice. And he says it's because your exaltation will be even greater when Christ returns. To the degree that you suffer or share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. This, it runs counter to our natural inclination as people but it's got one big presupposition, right? There's one big assumption that Peter is making here, and that is the assumption that our hope is in the return of Christ and his kingdom and not this world. That's the big key here. That's what Jesus said as well, right? Jesus turned... In face of the reality of suffering, Jesus turns our attention to eternity, not this world. I read verses 11 and 12 earlier but in Matthew 5, but let me back up and add verse 10. Jesus says, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. Jesus is saying, look, your hope cannot be in this world. If you want to rejoice in suffering, 
It's going to happen because you've recognized that this sinful world system is hopeless and you've placed your hope fully in the return of Christ in his coming kingdom. That's the theme of Hebrews 11. I think I can talk about Hebrews 11 because it'll be like my grandkids that hear Dusty talk about it. I meant to text him before and ask if I was allowed to make fun of that. But um, you read Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 is this great chapter where he goes through and he points us to examples of faithfulness from the Old Testament. And over and over again, the recurring theme is that they were faithful because their hope was not in this world, but in eternity. Hebrews, I'm going to read just a few passages here that kind of tie that together. The verses I'm skipping are really where he's pointing out specific characters and examples. But suffering is very much a part of this. Suffering in these, the lives of these men and women, very much a part of it. Hebrews 11.1, 1, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Verses 13 and 14, he gives these examples from the Old Testament. He says, all these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. The author here is making the point that um, the, the promises, what we hope in is not given to us in this life, but our hope is for something greater in the kingdom of God in eternity. And that's what gives us the heart and the mind to rejoice in the midst of suffering because when things go bad on this earth, well, it's what we expected. It's the effects of sin. It's what God promised us would happen. Uh, And so our rejoicing is not diminished because what we're really hoping in, eternal glory with our savior, that is secure and untouchable. And the source, the focus of our rejoicing cannot be diminished cannot be diminished. Verse 16 of Hebrews 11. They desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to call, be called their God for he has prepared a city for them. Verses 36 to 40. Others, again, he's given this whole list of characters from the Old Testament. He can't go through all of them, right? But others experienced mockings and scourgings. Yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground, and all these having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised because God has provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. The point being again there that their hope, their reward is exactly what Jesus said it would be. The eternal, untouchable kingdom of God. 
So the reason rejoicing doesn't make, to, make sense to us when it comes to suffering naturally is because we're thinking from a human level. And it makes no sense at all to rejoice in the suffering itself. That's not what the Bible's telling us to do. That's not what the Bible's calling us to do. This isn't some like um, fault in our psychology where we're result, rejoicing in pain itself the rejoicing is in being united to Christ. The rejoicing is in the glory that awaits the children of God. And what Peter says here, rejoice to the extent of your suffering because then you will exult at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It goes back to what I was saying yesterday. The hungrier and thirstier I got throughout the day, the better lunch tasted, you know? The more we suffer, the more we feel like a foreigner in this world, the more we're gonna rejoice when God's kingdom comes. Verse 14, if you're reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. There's nothing greater you can have than fellowship with God. That's what you were created for. That's what you were created for. And the suffering, the persecution of this world can never take that from you. The most important thing you possess is securely yours by the power and grace of God. Now, Peter's going to make a very clear and important point for us in verse 15. Because a lot of this suffering, this persecution, we're talking oftentimes about interpersonal conflict. Conflict with other people on this earth. That's the form that suffering that he's talking about persecution takes. And he wants to make it very clear to us that the only type of blessed suffering he's talking about is suffering for the name of Christ. Suffering for the name of Christ. That's what he's going to do in verse 15 here. Um, sin brings conflict into our lives, right? So if it's our own sinful actions that have brought interpersonal conflict into our lives, Peter's going to make it very clear here that there's no blessing in that type of suffering. Like if you're just a hateful person and you treat people badly, and so now you have conflict because you just treat people badly and they respond to that, Peter's going to tell us there's no blessing there for that. If you're somebody who is prone to outburst of anger, and so the reason you're not getting the promotion at work, is because nobody wants to work with you and be around you. There's no suffering for that. And we have like this defense mechanism built into us as people where we don't do a lot of self-reflection very well. And so if we're a follower of Christ who also does struggle with being just tough to be with and work with and hateful at work, and that's why you don't get the promotion, our self-defense mechanism that doesn't allow self-reflection very well can a lot of times look for other reasons, right? Like, I bet it's because I'm a Christian. I bet it's because, no, it's just because 
Everybody knows that you're just a really tough person to be around. If you're a prideful, boastful, arrogant person and that leads to interpersonal conflict in your life, there's no blessing there for that. Um, Verse 15, Peter says, make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. Going back to Romans 13, which I alluded to earlier, Paul tells us as a Christian, as much as it depends on you, as much as it's within your control, you should be at peace with the people around you. He says in Romans 13, submit to the governor, submit to the rulers over you, the earthly authorities, even the bad ones. As long as they're not telling you to live in disobedience to God, you do what they say. And, and you glorify God in whatever place and circumstances he's put you in. Um, Jesus in Matthew 5 says, blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed, he says in Matthew 5, 1 through 11, like, hey, blessed are you when you're persecuted, when you have interpersonal conflict because of me, but also blessed are the peacemakers. We should be people known for love known for kindness, known for graciousness. People should want to be around Christians, want to be around you at work because you are a loving, kind person. You don't compromise on the things of God. And when the time comes to have difficult conversations about the truths of God, you have those and you don't flinch from, the, from proclaiming the truth. But at all times possible, You do it with love and grace. Uh, It's just like when Peter tells them, always be ready to make a defense, right? Peter says, always be ready to make a defense for the hope that you have in Christ, yet with gentleness and reverence. Make sure that we don't suffer for our own sinfulness. So when suffering comes in, we need to do some self-evaluation. Why why am I having this conflict? When you have that interpersonal conflict in your family at work, why? But if it's because of the things of Christ, Peter says, do not be ashamed. Verse 16, but if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. Glorify God as somebody known to belong to Christ, a Christian. People at work, your family, your friends, they should know that you belong to Christ. They should know that you're a Christian. If they've spent significant time around you, Christ should be enough of your life to where it, it just comes up. It just happens, you know? And, uh, and you should glorify God in those relationships and those circumstances as people know that you belong to Christ. Now we'll look at the purpose of suffering in verses 17 and 18. And I'm gonna tell you it's a purifying purpose. The suffering has a purifying effect. John tells us that those who have their hope on the coming kingdom, they purify themselves. Uh, This dissatisfaction with this world 
in this longing for the kingdom, the eternal kingdom that we belong to, it has a purifying effect. Suffering purifies. Verses 17 and 18. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Now, now the wording here is interesting, some somewhat tricky wording, but here's what Peter is getting at. Purification is needed everywhere, within the church, outside of the church. None of us have reached glory yet. None of us are perfected yet. Even the church, even the best church is not heaven, right? It's not perfect. There's sanctification, purification that needs to take place in our lives, individually and collectively. And suffering does that. It's one of the tools, one of the main tools that God uses in purifying the church. God's way, one of his ways of dealing with sin. God in scripture, Moses referred to him as a consuming fire. A fire can do numerous things. Fire can destroy. Fire can also purify. God does both. When it comes to the lives of us as followers of Christ, individually and corporately, God is busy chastening us for our sins, disciplining us for our sins, purifying us. And it's one of the purposes of suffering in our lives. It purges us from sin. It turns our hope to heaven, which is a purifying hope. If you love this world too much, what does John say about loving the world? You can't love this world and God. Money is probably one of the key things in this world. What does Jesus say? You can't love money and God. You can't serve two masters. You can't serve um, both God and money. God's purifying work in the church through suffering is to lovingly continue to move our hope from this world to his eternal kingdom, to the day when persecution will be done away with. But it genuinely hurts, right? Like you don't make light of God's discipline in our lives and of the way that God can use suffering in our lives. It genuinely hurts. It's genuinely uncomfortable. There's no condemnation. Now that's a very important point for us to distinguish in our mind. Does God discipline his children? 100%. Does God chasten us? 100%. God purifies us? Absolutely. When, when Peter talks about the judgment here in verse 17, that's what he's talking about. Now, does God condemn 
his children for their sins? Absolutely not. We're talking about two totally different things here. Condemnation, Romans 8, 1 through 4, there is no condemnation for those in Christ. Condemnation has been done away with on the cross. Your sins have been paid for. uh, There's no condemnation for you if you are in Christ, but as a loving father, God loves you too much to just leave you in the sinful state that he finds you. When you come to Christ, while your sins are forgiven, you still struggle with sin and you still have sin in your life. And God, the judgment Peter's talking about here, works to purify that. And it's not always fun. In fact, it's very often not fun. Uh, You look at like, uh, um, well, you look at Hebrews chapter 12. For time's sake, I won't go there. But the author talks about how Hebrews 12, 7 and 8, God as a loving father disciplines us just the way a loving earthly father disciplines his own children. And it's in the moment, not pleasant, but it's for our eternal good. Psalm 51.8, David's most notable psalm of repentance. 51.8, David says, Lord, let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Isaiah 6, I love Isaiah 6. I don't know, I think we we have the holiness of God, R.C. Sproul book in there, but that's adapted from a sermon. I bet if you YouTube it, you can, like R.C. Sproul's Holiness of God sermon on Isaiah 6, maybe one of the best I've heard. But um, Isaiah and his repentance of being a man of unclean lips, the angel purifies those unclean lips with the burning coal. Repentance and God's purification is a painful process. And God lovingly does it to us as individuals in church, in the church. Now, for us in Christ, our condemnation has been taken care of. But for the world, for those outside of Christ, the only expectation is wrath. And if the purification of God's children involves such a struggle. That's what he's getting at here. If it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, not difficulty in the terms of like, hey, it's a challenge for God to do this. No, what he's talking about is this struggle that we experience, this suffering, this struggle with the world, the struggle with sin, the challenges that come into our lives through the sanctification process. Life is difficult. Any of us, if we're honest, are gonna admit, life is challenging and difficult. Just imagine then what God's condemning wrath on sin must be. Our minds really can't comprehend it. If it's with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? That verse, if you are not in Christ, should strike deep, deep fear within you. It's the wrath of God. When you see the destruction in this world, you see death. That is a 
just a small picture of the reality of what sin is. And the reality of sin is that the day of reckoning is coming. This return of Christ, it'll be a moment of exaltation, Peter says, for those who are in Christ, and it'll be a moment of damning wrath for those who are outside of Christ. The reality of judgment is clear. Verse 19 is really a summarizing verse, condensing all this. Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator and doing what is right. Just as Jesus would say, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Keep entrusting your soul to your faithful creator in doing what is right. How do we apply this? For us who are in Christ, number one, expect suffering. Expect it. You see bad things in this world. You experience bad things in this world. There's trouble. There's chaos. Yeah, it's sin. That's what God promised Adam and Eve. Hey, you sin. You're bringing death and destruction into this world. Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. Don't live in despair. Remember, this is what God said would happen in time after time after time, countless times. He has demonstrated his faithfulness, his love, his sovereignty, and his graciousness to carry his people through it and to use these things for his glory and even for your good. Number one, don't be surprised. Expect it. Number two, with that expectation, prepare. And when I say prepare, what I mean by that is 2 Peter 3.18, grow daily in the grace and knowledge of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Walk with him. Walk with him closely. Don't wait for life to get out of control to be like, yeah, you know, I guess I need God. You know, that's the wrong time. Daily, good days and bad days. Be walking with God, letting the word of Christ dwell richly within you, meditating on his word, praying, realizing that everything, big and small, you go to the Lord in prayer because you are incapable of doing anything apart from the grace and power of Jesus Christ. Your life is a life lived, meditating on his word in prayer. That would be how I would apply these passages for those of us who are in Christ. For anyone outside of Christ, my call to you would be recognize the bankruptcy of this world. Recognize the bankruptcy of this world. And that verse 18, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? You see, for us in Christ, 
God deals with sin, but he does it as a loving father. For those outside of Christ, trust me, God is going to deal with sin, but it'll be an eternal condemnation. And that day is coming. And when you start to feel the bankruptcy of life in this world and the things of this world, recognize that it's because you were not made for this world, that you were made for your creator. And while you've rebelled against your creator and you've made yourself an enemy of your creator, he extends to you grace through Jesus Christ. He sent his son to die for you, to pay that penalty, to take care of your condemnation so that you can be reconciled to him and become his child. And then he'll start to address the sin in your life as a loving father. And sure, it hurts sometimes, but there's joy, there's peace. And our lives begin to be lived, not in a hope for this world. So when we see things going crazy all the time, we think, you know, it's a bummer. It makes me sad. It hurts, but this isn't my hope. This isn't, this isn't what I was hoping in to start with. This isn't the source of my joy to start with. Our joy, our hope is in Jesus Christ, his eternal kingdom, and his kingdom, his kingdom is assured. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you so much for your graciousness in showing us your truth and giving us your truth that we don't have to live this life guessing. We don't have to guess who are you and what are we supposed to do and how can we be made right with you? Lord, you have given us your word. You've revealed yourself to us. You've shown us your son in your word. And we just thank you so much for the graciousness in doing that. We uh, thank you too, Lord, that um, as we live in a challenging world and see challenging things, we have the assurance of your promises and your goodness, and you show that to us every single day. Pray that you'd grow us in our love for you, help us to pursue you more and more every day. And it's in Christ's name we pray, amen.